0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. As ever, I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I'm taking you back to school for a particularly gothic lesson. Our guest is Emily Danforth, the author of The Miseducation of Cameron Post and her new novel, Plain Bad Heroines. It's already on every must-read list for the autumn, and it promises to be a book unlike anything you've read in 2020. It's a metafictional tour de force that manages to marry the hypermodern world of celebrity with some dark goings-on at a girls' school around the turn of the 20th century. And that's about as broad and bland a summary as you can give of the book. As well as being a thoroughly spooky slice of American Gothic, Plain Bad Heroines is also a self-aware comedy, an expose of filmmaking and social media, and a treatise on authenticity. Oh, and it also manages to bring an important figure from the history of queer culture back into the limelight. So here we go. To a spit of land on the edge of Rhode Island, in two different centuries. Let's talk scared. Hi, Emily. How are you, and where are you?
1: I am in Rhode Island, and I'm I'm doing pretty well. How about you?
0: I'm I'm pretty well, yeah. I, uh, I finished your book today in a kind of mad dash for the finish line. <laughs> Thank you. Good. I can talk to you about it at least, which makes this entire process a bit more worthwhile. Um, So Rhode Island, that's um, very telling. Your new novel, Plain Bad Heroines, is is set there, and it was published yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. So I've been looking around online, and it's already made most of the important must-read list for 2020. It's the kind of book that definitely prompts questions, and I've got lots of questions, so let's get straight to it. It's a very unique novel in a lot of ways. Can you do your best to synopsize?
1: I will do my best. It has been challenging with this book uh, because of its uniqueness, but um, it's the, the kind of joke that I came up with that has been repeated back and has some, seemed to stick to this novel, which is fine. It gets a little bit at the tone of the narrator, is that it's Picnic at Hanging Rock plus The Blair Witch Project times Lesbians you know, to go into a little bit more depth, um, I, will, I will say that it's, it, it's roughly split into a historic time period that's around uh, turn of the 20th century and into a, a, a roughly contemporary time period, not quite present day, but, you know, 20, 2015, we'll say. Um, and in the, the historic time period, we're at a boarding school in coastal Rhode Island, um, a, a girls boarding school and the students have gotten their hands on a copy of a very real memoir that was published in 1902 called The Story of Mary McLean, which was by a then 19 year old bisexual woman writer from Butte, Montana, and it was a sensation, um, sadly has, has been sort of largely forgotten, but it was a memoir that sold 80,000 copies in its first month. The girls at my boarding school get their hands on it, and very bad things seem to follow. Uh, There are a number of deaths, and really, the historic portion of the story follows the women that run this boarding school as they try to decide for themselves: is this book cursed? Is there some sort of curse at Brokants? And that's the you know the the short version of the of the historic half of the novel. The contemporary half of the novel follows the making of a uh, controversial queer horror film that is being. Made about this story that I just told you about, the curse at Brokant and is being set on location at uh, at and so it involves three of the young women that are involved in that production. two of them are are actresses, and one is the writer, sort of uh, <laughs> too talented for her own good young writer who wrote uh, the the adaptation of that nonfiction
0: tale uh, and now is involved. That is a very boiled down version of a very, very <laughs> big novel. There's a lot more to it than that, and I heartily recommend everyone read it. Um, If you, I I think of it as kind of House of Leaves light. Mm. I I don't mean the light in any way to be a criticism, more House of Leaves, but much more easily readable, I would say. Mm. The novel has curses, it has hauntings, it has plenty of gruesome deaths. But, and I think it is a big but, do you think it's a horror novel?
1: You know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean I've been calling it a gothic novel, um, which I felt pretty comfortable with um making a case for it as uh, both uh, a, a novel that celebrates a lot of the things that I love about gothic novels and that also um pokes fun at some of those things um with with you know along with a real celebration of them um, but I do think the horror category is expansive. I think some folks that are um you know, really well versed, um, might be more ready to make a claim for it as a as a horror novel. And and I think I'm sure there are other readers, plenty of them, that who will say that it's not. I've I've been really grateful and and frankly glad to be welcomed by some fantastic horror writers who seem to to think that this fits right in. Some fantastic contemporary horror writers. So I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm the one that should answer that. I like I said, I've been calling it a, a queer gothic novel, and that feels right to me.
0: Yeah, it feels right to me too. I think Gothic more than horror. I mean that might be an empty kind of, you know, difference anyway these days. It it does riff a lot with those those gothic themes. I mean, Brooke Haunts reminds me very much of kind of the the kind of Edward Gorey aesthetic with it's very creepy but in a in, in almost quite a light hearted, creepy sense. The book's very funny. Thank you. It's very, very funny in parts as well. Were they two quite difficult things to marry together, like the whimsy of the humor and the the horror of the horror? For want of a better word,
1: no. I mean, not for me. I think that um, I. I mean, I think obviously there are all kinds of ways in which comedy and horror have been paired before, partly because of the responses they elicit in in readers and viewers. But I, I mean, I think for me, whatever success or failures the novel has, it's it's partly on the, the strengths of the narrator and the narrator's tone and the narrator kind of taking you by a, a, a firm hand and saying, I'm going to guide you back and forth between this past world and this present world. And, and the way the narrator views these world worlds and draws connections between them and cracks jokes, right. Sometimes in the footnotes, I, I just, I really wanted the book to be pleasurable and fun for readers to read. And I, and I know this is cliche. I'm, I'm, I'm very aware But I I did do the thing that we tell writers to do all the time, which is I wrote the novel I wanted to read. And I think this is, I love this kind of combination of tones. Um, I think sometimes it can be much more dramatic. You know, if you look at a movie like The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which I, the, the original, I know there's been a couple of remakes. There's this really bumbling kind of like Barney Fife cop procedural with this slapstick humor with these inept cops. I mean, truly they are filmed as slapstick scenes. And then these incredibly brutal, brutal murders by this killer with a, you know, a a pillowcase over his head and uh, the eyes cut out. And, you know, when I first watched that movie as a kid, I think the thing that unsettled me most was the pairing of those two Tonal styles, I couldn't have named it then, you know, in seventh grade at a sleepover watching that movie. But it was that that film gave us both of those things. Um, and I think that, you know, that sort of seeded itself. And I, I really like that. I appreciate that. So that was I, I, you know, I set out to combine those things. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't
0: imagine having written the book any other way. My example of that, that uncanny pairing of tones is um, Eli Roth's Cabin Fever
1: oh sure
0: yeah oh, you've seen that oh yeah well you've got the strange thing with the uh the kid doing karate kicks outside the store yes. and then, and then yes. we cut to a woman shaving her skin off it's just yeah it's um it is weird yeah i've got a few questions about tone um but first of all you mentioned that you you mentioned footnotes and that's one of the things we haven't really made clear is that this is a novel that's full of footnotes and kind of narrative intrusion mm-hmm. you've got the world's most sarcastic narrator. I I, I really, really appreciate the narrator's tone of voice. Why did you write it like that? Why did you want to write it as a complex kind of meta narrative with footnotes?
1: You know, I think, again, there was something about moving back and forth between these time periods um, where I wanted the narrator again to have that kind of firm hand. And I saw the footnotes as part of the narrator's authority I mean, yes. The, the narrator is cracking cracking jokes in the in the footnote sometimes, um, but also sometimes giving you information that you don't get in the other texts of the novel, and that you need um, if you're following the plot at all. And so that was you know a conscious decision too. That you know I I don't know that I, it's hard to kind of go back and piece together your your writing timeline and and not just be making it up for the sake of answering a question. So I don't know exactly when the footnotes entered in, but that narrative voice came in pretty, you know, pretty soon in the writing process. And this felt to me like a narrator who, who would use footnotes. I mean, partly because the novel is commenting on the illusion of truth in the stories we tell or how we tell stories that, you know, purport to be real in some way. And footnotes, you know, have that kind of, um, authoritative, right? This has been researched and checked and this is a this is someone, you know, who's who's got great knowledge of the subject matter who's telling you about this. And and there's a kind of winking at that in the novel too. So uh, they, they absolutely felt right for other things that
0: I was doing in the book. Before we go any further, because it is so complex and because it is, you know, it's quite the big beast, how long did it take to write?
1: You know, I mean, again, that's, I can give you one answer and it, and that's eight years, but I think that's, it's just not, it's not really a true answer. Um, I think from initial idea, which was somewhere in the summer of, um, uh, 2012, I had this idea that I wanted to write and it was, it, 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 the book was so different then. I, my idea was that I was just going to write a con- totally contemporary novel, you know, so probably then at that point it would have been set in 2012 or thereabouts, about the filming of a found footage style horror film, at this location that I had, this abandoned boarding school in Rhode Island. And I didn't know why the boarding school was abandoned. I mean, there were all kinds of like easy Gothic reasons I could fill in, but that was really what I had. And then I had these three characters that were sort of like the three contemporary women characters, um, kind of some version of that. And I set off on my path, writing that that version of the novel um, that cycled between the, those three POVs Gosh, maybe for a couple years. I'm I'm slow, so I mean, it wasn't like I was you know writing every every week or something. But I I got a ways into it. Um, And what happened was that in my sort of just initially, my desire to answer for myself why the boarding school was abandoned, which you know I I could have done very quickly, right? I could have you know made that the work of a paragraph. I became more and more. Um, you I know, really sort of intoxicated with the research that I did into women's colleges at the turn of the century and, and the Gilded Age um, and uh, Romantic Era, the sort of sanctioning of romantic friendships between women. I read a lot of Lillian Faderman and this great book called College Girls, where there, were, you know, there was all this evidence of these, these girls having these elaborate crushes on each other and this being totally sort of accepted as part of the culture. And then they would go off, of course, and, and leave their schools and marry men for the most part and i just i really wanted to spend time in that world and so i kept trying to stuff it into the novel i was writing in ways that just did not work very well i mean i had like journal entries at one point and i had these these long letters between one of the characters and and her dad and eventually i i just realized i had to write the historic portion i wanted to see those characters in scene and like i said i was already kind of a couple years in to playing around with this other version of the novel and had to really convince myself to completely reapproach things. So, um, so you know, in the end, it's really eight, eight years now later between the idea that I had and this finished version of the, of the novel. But I, it's not true that I was writing,
0: you know, every day of those eight years. Sure, but still must be pretty satisfying to see it in print finally after all that. But... It
1: is, yeah, yeah, and it's a beautiful edition.
0: Mara really nailed it. Oh, it's a stunning book, and it's it's full of illustrations that are just in, incredibly evocative as well. Um, hey, where did these illustrations come from? Whose idea was that?
1: Um, that so that was my idea. Uh, I was contacted by the the woman who ended up illustrating the book, Sarah Lautmann, Um And she contacted me at some point when I was writing that kind of that other version of the book and and had read my first novel, which is a coming of age story. And she said, you know, I'm a fan. If you ever want to collaborate on something. And I think Sarah really meant, you know, do you want to collaborate on a, a short story or an essay? <laughs> Um, and I didn't have anything like that. And, and so I told her that and I was teaching full time then. And I just said, you know, thanks. This is awesome. Maybe someday. And then as I got into these, uh, this other version of the novel that had this historic half, I thought, well, this, this is the thing that should be illustrated, obviously, right. Period, boarding school novels, um, and, and sort of sapphic history and, and sapphic history in, Those images are completely entwined. And so I wrote uh, uh, Sarah back and luckily she was thrilled. And so some of the illustrations, some of the work she was doing, you know, we were collaborating even before I was finished writing the book, which I actually think was helpful when I went to sell it. There was no guarantee that my publisher would go for the illustrations, but I, I actually think in this case it was helpful that I said, but here's this big weird book. And also <laughs> it's, it's already illustrated and, you know, we've already worked that out. So I wasn't trying to say, and I'd like it to be illustrated. And and that helped a lot. Also, so much of the book is about, it's about, I mean, I, and you obviously know the gothic much better than I do, but it's about um, these acts of looking. And sometimes they're, they're, they are this kind of voyeuristic acts of looking characters, you know, seeing things for some sort of sexual reason or lurking in some way and seeing something that they're not supposed to see. And there's obviously a whole thread with, um with what the movie, the filmmakers are seeing that they shouldn't see. But I think those acts of looking, they just really laid the groundwork for it to make sense for there to be illustrations as well, beyond the historic kind of nature of them. It's one more way of looking at this world and these characters. So,
0: so playing bad heroines takes its name from Mary McLean's writing Um, And she is a real world figure, and I think in many ways, I really am evidence to the point you're making in this book: in that women's stories and women's voices are are eradicated from history because I've never heard of her. So, and I think a lot of people may not have heard of her. She's really important. Can you give us a little background into who Mary McLean was?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, it's it's you're taking that on as having not heard of her. I will say that I've you know I've talked to plenty of of women who, um, are probably more knowledgeable queer women in particular about, you know, really seeking out some of these writers and, and many of them haven't heard of her. And I, and I have to say part of my, part of my initial kind of like interest in Mary McLean when I did learn about her and, you know, I think my late twenties, um, was that I too was doing this graduate work in, you know, sort of lesbian and queer women narratives. And here was this bisexual woman writer, from Butte, Montana. And I grew up in Montana, fourth generation, born and raised, and I had never heard of her. Uh, and when I say she was a sensation, I mean, again, 80,000 copies of her memoir sold in the first month alone. And that, that doesn't even really begin to scratch the surface. There were cocktails named after Mary McLean, a, a Butte a cigar manufacturer named, uh, she licensed her, her name to him. Um, so, so there was the Mary McLean cigar. There was a baseball team for a while named after her. And, you know, at a time when there were obviously many, many more newspapers, she got just this unreal amount of press coverage, which was part of the fun of researching this book. You could just find um, from the spring that book was published on through that year, just endless press coverage, reviews of her book, you know, this kind of very gossip column-y, where is Mary McLean now? Where in the world is Mary McLean? What's she doing? There was all this controversy about was she going to enroll at Radcliffe? She wasn't really prepared. She was too scandalous and and so you know i learned about her as this sensation and then i think the like the real delight for me and outspoken right and and she and i knew that that she was you know sort of beseeching the devil in the pages of these books of this book this memoir and that um, that she had you know kind of crossed all these these lines for the time 1902 but but what i didn't know is how much i was going to love reading her book once I got him. And I knew that she was this great figure. I'd seen her in, a, in the little bit of, you know, kind of criticism I could read about her kind of described as like the Paris Hilton of her day or something. But I think that that really doesn't get at just how fun The Diary of Mary McLean is to read, which she wanted published as I Await the Devil's Coming, which my book talks about. It's just a delight. It's It's so honest. And she's really wrestling with you know, who she is as a young woman and what she gets to say and what the world will allow her to say and what opportun- kind of opportunities she's going to have. And she really is wrestling in this sort of metafictional way, right? It's a memoir, but this meta way with what is this this portrayal? She is, you know, she's very, very aware that she is crafting this portrayal and she's going to send it out into the world. And she hopes that it will launch her into literary stardom, which in fact it does. I mean, this, you know, it's it's the ultimate curse. She gets exactly what she wants and it doesn't make her happy, But the book is also really wry and strangely sort of for its time, sexy and unafraid of of its sexiness. So I I did not expect that, even once I'd read more about her, just how much I was going to enjoy reading the book. And I completely understood why it captivated audiences the way that it did. I mean, sometimes because they were banning it and they were afraid of it. But certainly there were teen girls that, just as the teen girls in my novel, that formed clubs in her honor because she was saying things that they didn't even know they could say. So she was remarkable. I mean, she's—you know—I'm—I'm thrilled that this book is introducing readers to her work. That's amazing to me.
0: Yeah, she almost feels like a character in the novel, despite—or—or maybe a ghost haunting the novel. Who knows? But listen to you talk. Then I've just realized something about the novel that I hadn't picked up on previously, which is the fact that one of your protagonists, Harper, who is a kind of indie movie darling in the book. She is at the, you know, in, in, in the, the absolute, the furnace of social media. And I've just realised that you, if I, unless I'm wrong, you are making a direct comparison between uh, Mary McLean and her notoriety and, and Harper's Kind of sought for notoriety. Yeah, am I right in that? I've I've literally just realized that.
1: Yeah, that absolutely is. That's that's exactly right. And and then I think like the other, and there are all kinds of you could call them Easter eggs if you wanted to, but echoes pretty purposefully between characters and sometimes lines of dialogue and and sometimes phrases or images between the past section and the present section of this novel. Sometimes really heavy-handed and and other times less so, kind of mirroring or echo effect. So, yeah, I think Harper is one half of who Mary McLean was in 1902, right? And, and, and sort of holds, in, in the way that you just described it, holds that kind of, um, that piece of her fame. And then Merritt, the writer character, is the other half. It's sort of, um, she doesn't hold that Harper-Harper kind of star power, but... Um, she's you know she's a writer and she's she's conscious of sort of crafting her persona as a writer in the way that Mary McLean was too so it took two characters in the present day to do what Mary McLean herself did in
0: 1902 <laughs> there you go there you go so you know we're talking about authenticity of self and inauthenticity and and fake and fiction and and as i say that's everywhere in your novel what i've got to ask first of all though when it comes to Mary herself, Mary McLean, are all of the references to her writings and her life in the novel real? Yes. Because I kept getting the sneaking feeling that it's such a tricky book that even though I was googling her, I was like, you know, th- is this an ad thing? That is this a viral thing that's been created to kind of, you know, back up the, the verisimilitude of the of the novel I couldn't work out where the fiction began and ended so that's all real
1: that's all real yeah every every bit of the mary McLean is uh you know that's all the text that's reproduced i mean i think that there's in the very opening chapter you know, she's asked to comment or something on the deaths of the girls, um, and I'm not giving anything away. It's it's the opening chapter, and she was staying at a seaside hotel at that time. And my research told me that she did not comment on the deaths of my two fictional characters. Obviously, so um, she gets one line of of dialogue to a to a newspaper reporter, and that Mary McLean didn't say that. But anything else that's attributed to her in the novel or or said about her life, or certainly reproduced from her work, that that all is absolutely. True. That's all. That's all Mary McLean and her writing.
0: But it's incredible then because you you thread quotes from her into your novel and often into your dialogue in a way that just it, it fits every scenario. I mean, you must be you must have such a good knowledge of that book, of her memoir to do it in that way. I mean, how many times have you read it? Because it's just every every chapter, there's, someone drops a quote and it just, you know, it is literally so pertinent. Did Did Mary McLean's memoir start to almost <laughs> yeah. shape your novel in some ways?
1: I mean, it, I think it probably did. I think it probably did. I mean, I, I'm sure I've read it 15 to 20 times by now. Um, it's not a, it's not a huge book, and I'm a pretty fast reader. And certainly, there are, are sections of it that I've read more than that. And I taught it once, and so of course you, you 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 learn a text more intimately, or at least in different ways when you when you teach it. So I yeah, her her presence hovered throughout the book um, and, and I'm sure kind of infiltrated the way I saw these characters, which, which suits the purposes of the plot. So, um, yeah. Yeah. But I love that you think that it was almost like a marketing scheme or something or something (laughs) that fits also really well with the book, but no, all of that is, we've got to give credit where it's due and it goes to Mary McLean.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. It's one of those things I was like, well, you know, where are the parameters of this text? Where does the text end? Have they been on just like doctored Wikipedia to create, some kind of background <laughs> um what about the school yes. is brookholms based in any way on reality no no
1: brookholms is entirely a, a, a fictional invention although of course there were women's boarding schools and and i looked a lot again at at, at women's colleges at the turn of the century too but brookholms is fake um there are things in the novel that are real that i've shaped and fictionalized that i think people wouldn't guess are real uh spite tower there's a place in Little Compton, Rhode Island called Spite Tower, that is its name. And it, it the local lore is that it was constructed uh, because of a feud between neighbors and one of them wanted to block the other sightline. line. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you can you can read about that. You can visit Spite Tower if you're ever in Little Compton. But, it, you know, that is the lore and it's great sort of apocryphal lore, but uh, people largely agree that the tower was built as a well house and also I think uh, like sleeping quarters for the family chauffeur. So um, still, the, you know, that, that sort of New England story of feuding neighbors lives on and it is called Spite Tower. And then also the house in the novel that incorporates the tower, um, Spite Manor, it's, a, it's based on a real house in Little Compton that, at, you know, in the 1890s, architects um, from Providence incorporated a, a windmill. Um, into a tower, which I just thought was really interesting. And and the sort of thing that that I think we tend to think of as being more a facet of contemporary architecture, right? That like you would repurpose something that wasn't really meant to live in, but this was, you know, this was 1890s. So I combined those two things that are our very real locations, the Windmill House and Spite Tower and made them into one. And there are lots of other things like that in the novel that I think that, you know, most readers would not know do take some basis in reality.
0: I found the school idea fascinating, but I was, I was actually really happy that it didn't become a school novel, you know what I mean? Because I think <laughs> sure. we've had so many of those. I love that you you focused instead on this quite touchy relationship between two women who live kind of adjacent. They're involved with the school once they have mistress, but they, they live adjacent in, in spite manner. I really like that. It went in a way that I didn't expect. Your characters are almost kind of exclusively female I would say there are some peripheral male characters, but it's an almost entirely, it's a, it's a, it's a book that would pass the Beckdale test, put it that way. And most of your characters are are gay or have had gay experiences. In a genre that has so few kind of mainstream novels that, that celebrate or even represent the LGBT community, was there any element of kind of challenge on your part there? Was that kind of a clarion call in any way?
1: Yeah, no, I don't think I. I mean, challenge isn't the word that I would use. I think, um, and and other other lesbian novelists have said this. And uh, Sarah Waters, who's one of my one of my favorite novelists, ever I know has said it. But I, I just think, as as a lesbian, I will never not write 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 about lesbians. I mean, it's just a thing that I will always do. And and I've appreciated, you know, a few other interviewers have said like it it's, you know, it's refreshing that there's this many queer characters, or I couldn't believe there were this many, you know, queer women characters, but I don't, um, certainly, I guess if you're saying Clarion Call, I was very conscious of writing women back into history, and the two women that you just talked about, in particular Libby and Alex, who sort of co-sort of married and run the, board, the boarding school. I, I, you know, I'm aware of how often portrayals of lesbians and sapphic women from history have been just, you know, infuriatingly erased or coded or, you know, we're told all the time, look again, look between. They didn't really identify that way. It's incredibly frustrating to me um, when it can be so obvious, right, in a text and yet you'll have someone piping up and say, Well, they never actually we don't have like a recorded testimony of them saying they were a lesbian. So you better not call them that. So yeah, there was this sense of like I am going to write these characters back in to history and I am going to give you um, their their love affair. And that was really important to me, especially because these, you know, pretty awful things happened to them. And I wanted you to get to see them and readers to get to see them at a different time and a better time. So that that's for sure true of the historic characters. This the cast of, of characters being as queer as they are was felt very natural to me. I mean, probably because my my social circle and my friend circle is It's
0: pretty queer. I I was talking to um, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia about, Mm -hmm. you know, writing Mexican Gothic. Yeah, it's so great. Oh, it's a great book. But about the fact that it it doesn't – a lot of people criticise that book for not being Mexican enough, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we had this whole chat about how just because it's set in Mexico, it doesn't need to feature, you know, Day of the Dead. Right. And equally, just because a book – yeah, just because a book is about queer characters, that does not need to be the defining theme or character trait of those those characters. So I think that was really, really refreshing. M- my point is that you just mentioned then Sarah Waters. Obviously, these days, if you say, you know, queer gothic, everyone thinks Sarah Waters because yeah, for sure. no one else is out there getting the platform to do it in the way that, as Sylvia said about Mexican gothic, she is now the Mexican horror writer. And because mm. she exists, there may not be another one who gets the chance. You know, so... I do feel, I'm kind of just rambling there, but I do feel like that is a bit of a problem.
1: Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think that queer writers, we, you know, we often feel a lot of burden of representation. We know how, um, especially when we we look at some of the genres, how little our stories have been told. And I mean, I certainly have felt that myself. You feel this need to kind of represent your community, even though you know know that that's fraught and impossible. Um, I read a meme the other day that, you know, like, like, pleasing, pleasing lesbians in your entertainment is hurting cats or, you know, something something like that. And it's true. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a lesbian. My wife is a lesbian. We don't agree on any of the revs we ever see, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, it's an impossible and in some ways kind of ludicrous task to take on to think that you you even would be able to. But I, again, because of there's been so long such a scarcity, I understand writers just wanting to do it. And I've worked with young queer writers who feel this burden. And I think it's really stifling. You know, they, they can't even kind of finish projects because they're really concerned about somehow not getting the representation right, right, or letting, letting members of their community down or not doing enough, right, that they don't have enough. And so yeah, certainly, I, I don't think that I start my fiction from that place. Um, that's not really where my stories come from, other than, like I said, I'll always write about queer characters. I am queer. But yeah, I think it gets, I think it gets, you know, it's complicated. I know as many, certainly queer writers and queer readers who want the things that you're talking about, right? That, which is that, like, it's not maybe a coming out kind of narrative, right? Or that it's it's not a character wrestling with that piece of their identity, that that piece of their identity is known and known to other characters, but it isn't the, the kind of, um, fulcrum around which the novel is shaped. But I do think that those books still do, still do serve some readers as well. And so it's just again, I think it's that sort of scarcity model of, of writers sometimes feeling like their books have to do all those things, right. And yeah, I've, I've worked with a number of queer writers over the years and some, some really new queer writers and it's been in some ways kind of heartbreaking to me how I think kind of frozen they've felt by the burden of getting it right and, and trying to do everything, which of course is impossible. You're never going to be
0: able to. And and let's get back to horror ourselves. So we've we've gone on some tangents, but I want to talk about horror now. That's what we're here for after all. I've looked, I've been a bit, a bit of lurking on your website, and on your Instagram and stuff like that. And you've, you know, you've been looking, you've got a post about Paul Tremblay's Survivor Song. You just mentioned uh, Mexican Gothic. Your bio references April Fool's Day is your favorite slasher movie. <laughs> is it safe to say you're a horror fan?
1: Oh, yes, usually.
0: There are references to gothic fiction in this, but it seems like horror films seem to be the background texture to your novel, um, at least in terms of the novel's horror aspects. And found footage in particular is important. Do we all hate found footage now? What are your thoughts on this? Were you a fan? Are you still a fan?
1: I definitely don't hate it. I mean, I think I I understand the rap that it's, it's, you know, probably is fair that it's gotten that there are a lot of not great found footage horror films because they can be made on the cheap. And there are a lot that feel like, you know, just imitations of those that have come before. Um, I still think that Blair Witch deserves kind of its place in that, whatever that pantheon is. Um, For me, it's, you know, probably still one of the top 20 scariest horror films I've ever seen. And, just felt really revolutionary and smart and still does. I mean, I think it actually still really holds up. And there have been, there have been a number of, of others. Um, and I just, you know, I think, so no, I mean, I, I don't, I, I A lot of horror fans do hate, uh, you know, uh, I, I know that found footage, but I would not count myself among them. I've seen some not great ones for sure. <laughs> um, I'm losing the title, but you might know it. Um, the, it's the teens that are doing the play, in the, in the school assigned. You know what I'm talking? Oh, the
0: gallows.
1: Oh Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that would be, that would be one that was recommended to me um, somewhat recently that I found uh pretty disappointing, but I, I thought, you know, I'm probably going to just like, you know, people are going to, if you're saying, we're saying cringe, you're going to cringe. Now I thought the first paranormal activity that scared the crap out of me, I saw it in the theater. I wasn't expecting it. Um, I was, it was sort of, blown away by some of the choices that they made and, and was really interested in it. I have not watched all of them since I loved the documentary style found footage. Um, and again, help me out with the title that's set in, I believe, Australia, um, with the family, with the
0: the missing daughter. I'm, I'm sorry, I've lost. I, I've written this down because you mentioned it in the book and it's, it's mark- yeah. one of my favorite films of all time. It's Lake Mungo. It's
1: so good. Yes. Thank you. Lake Mungo. I was going to say yeah. Lake and then that wasn't right. And I think that's so smart. So, I mean, I think that there are still, you know, there are filmmakers that are doing interesting things with found footage and have approached it in different ways. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would not be prepared to to argue with the horror fan that's ready to tell <laughs> me that it's it's the death of the genre
0: or something. Yeah, Le- Late Mongo is a masterpiece. That that's my continual go to recommendation mm. when people say, "Tell me a horror, a horror film I haven't seen." I always say Late Mungo. It's so great. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to say anything about it. Spoil it.
1: It got me. You know, I had no idea where we were going, and um, it tripped me up the whole way
0: through. So yeah, I've, it, it's brilliant. It's the only film I've ever seen where the the things that occurred during the final credits completely mm. change what the film means. Mm. And I've never seen that before. It was, yeah, mm. it's an astonishing piece of work. What else inspired this? I'm always fascinated by inspiration. So I always like to guess, um, and I have, I have a theory about this that you may be very opposed to, but what, what yeah. other films or books or, you know, stuff? <sighs>
1: Well, I'm a, I am, I'm a huge, uh, Sarah Waters fan. And so I, I love The little stranger too, but I think more for this novel, um, fingersmith and some of the kind of, uh, fingersmith is my favorite of Waters novels and I've read them all and I am a huge fan of all of them. You know, that book is doing different things and is about different things, but I think some of the play between perspectives, some of the ways that she sets up twists or who knows what, when, um, and also just kind of the ambition and, and, um, size of that book. It's always just been one of those books that I return to one of those novels that I'm envious of people who haven't had the chance to read Fingersmith yet. So I think it's always there. I think one that might surprise you and has surprised some other people that I have told um, would be uh, a Straub's ghost story. Um, And I think, you know, you might not see kind of direct comparisons, but I think there is something about the way the, the chowder society kind of gathering to tell these tales and then these tales um, manifesting and some of the stuff with what happens in terms of, of the physical world in that novel encroaching on these characters and that being kind of the horror and these echoes through the years of, of this horror. So, I mean, again, he's a very different writer than I am and that's a very different book, but I, I think that was there kind of lodged in my consciousness in writing this. And is one of my favorite big meaty seventies horror novels. Uh, certainly, haunting of Hill House is always there, right for for I think any <laughs> contemporary um, uh, horror writer and I'm, I'm a big Shirley Jackson fan. and again, I couldn't be a different more different stylist than she is, but some of her preoccupations, I think are my preoccupations too, in terms of things that scare me, things I'm interested in. So I mean that would that would, that would just be three. I think again, ghost story would probably be the one that people might be most surprised about. I can see because
0: the story and the story structure. I can, I can, the, the, I can totally see. I think there's something about the landscapes or the way you write the landscape is quite Peter Straub, although I can't quite put my finger on what it is. There's something about the um, the, the ripeness,
1: the snow. I think, right?
0: No, but not just the also the descriptive style. I mean, this is me telling you about your writing now, which is always a bit of an appalling thing to do. But there's something in your descriptive style that's as rich as Straub's, which I appreciated. The the person I was going to suggest, I don't know how you're going to take this, because it's someone who, who I think in many ways could not be more different than you in sort of literary outlook, but the person I kept getting a feel for all the way through the contemporary narrative strand was and Ellis. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So I know you referenced him, because at one point Merritt is reading Less Than Zero when she's flying to yeah. LA to get a feel for the LA scene. But the entire, I think you write about fame and about um, that sliding, creepy, what is real, what is not real, that he does so well in things like Glamorama and American Psycho. I think you do that, but you apply it to a much more benign world. Uh, and I, I wonder what you feel about that comparison. Because I imagine, as I say, somebody who has a, you know, he the persona he has developed in, in, in more recent years, couldn't be more different to to yours and, and kind of the values you're trying to espouse in this novel. Uh, but is there any truth in that, do you think?
1: Um, well, I know, I mean, I know his early work, certainly. And I, I mean, um, those are novels that I've read and, and read a few times and I think probably were taught. It, um, I haven't taught them, but I think they were probably included in some curriculum and in graduate work that I did. So I certainly know his work and I, and I do, know some of his his more recent persona and i mean i would agree i don't think that we have the sort of same guideposts in the way that we approach things certainly and we certainly don't have the same background or experiences either but there may be something to that i don't i don't know that i um see in my own style necessarily ellis but there but there may be something i mean what you say about kind of Thinking about fame and and the way that I write about fame, yeah, there may be something there. I mean, I'm I'm just I'm sorry, I'm just trying to like puzzle through this as you've said it, right? So I I didn't know what you were going to say because there was a long lead up, and then I um, I definitely wasn't expecting him, so it's surprising. Um, I nobody's ever told me that before. My first novel is very different than this novel, and so yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'll have to think more about that.
0: Yeah, because I I love the way that you kind of move from that gleaming kind of postmodern style into the American Gothic of the of the the older story particularly the particularly the the backstory to the curse um and ellis aside i wonder if you struggled to to combine those two things because they're they're such distinct narrative styles did you was that an easy thing to do to jump from one to the other or or was it a struggle
1: yeah because of the way that i wrote the novel you know i think if i wrote in in a more linear fashion, uh, probably it would be once I got to some of those sections of the novel that I already had kind of my sense of the scaffolding of the book in place. And I could work on a contemporary section for a while, right? Or with a contemporary character and then kind of be done with that and work in the historic portion. And again, I think the thing for me, because there is, there really are like a number of, of it's, you know, I said the simplistic and you, you know, you said at the beginning, that's far too simplistic. The simplistic kind of division is this past and present, but there are several <laughs> pasts that get told um, in the novel. And then there's you know, the very final chapter, in fact, is, is, is truly present tense. Um, and so there are a number of, 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 of points of view and time periods that we're really hovering in. And I think again, the the thing for me that allowed me to do that and feel some confidence in doing it that I, hopefully readers won't get totally lost is is just that that narrator. That's the guiding force, right? And, and the narrator really is determined to take you by the hand from page one and say, "I've got this. I'm your pilot. If you can just sit back and let me follow you, I will I will take you back and forth." But I mean, I, I you know, I, I already anticipated and have seen a little bit that um, certainly some readers are just going to respond more to one. Time period than the other, they're going to respond more to the the style and the and also I think just the storyline with the contemporary characters, or they're they're going to respond more to the characters in the past. And I suppose that's just the nature of writing a book like this, you know.
0: Yeah, you see, you totally hooked me though because I you had me in that agonized position where every time one narrative kind of let up and went to the other, I was like, oh, I want to know more about that. And then by the time I got to the the end of the contemporary the other or or that period of the contemporary stuff I was like no I want to know more about that so it actually it really worked to keep me propulsively reading which was yeah really great I absolutely loved the book absolutely loved it um thank you my, my last question about it is because I full disclosure I haven't read The Miseducation of Cameron Post
1: oh sure no no yeah. I
0: am going to go and read it now but I haven't read it yet but I have seen the movie so I'm going to do oh. the awful thing now where I <laughs> kind of use the movie as a touchstone to make a comment about the book. So forgive yeah. me. Um, but both stories, shall we say, seem to focus on young gay women trapped in a claustrophobic space who are being forced to kind of wrestle with a projected self as opposed to an inner authentic self. That's what I found most fascinating about, fascinating about this book because I felt like playing bad heroines because i felt like it was all about at the end of the day that projection of 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 persona as opposed to who you really are what is it then about that experience that captures your imagination so much
1: well, I mean, I think that ties to some of like my deep existential anxieties about self.
0: Oh, it's always nice to get into those on in a podcast.
1: Let's <laughs> end on like, yeah, the big, weighty questions. I mean, I some of this undoubtedly is just um, me wrestling with my own identity, right, and my own fears and questions again as like a queer woman um, and a queer woman now and the queer woman I was. 10 years ago and 10 years before that. But when you you talk about that kind of projection of self um, or anxiety about or fears of that projection itself, I think, you know, particularly as a a queer person, because so much of that, as I said, has either been kind of erased from the historical record or coded or distorted for us, or, you know, at least when I was young, sort of, I was told that, these innate feelings that I had these desires. I mean, it always comes back in horror and sex to desire were wrong or sinful, bad, right. Um, would have me cast out. Yeah. I think I am thinking about that a lot. And then can you trust those feelings, right? If, if the world around you tells you other things about them and if, if you can't, then how do you, you know how do you form your identity? I mean, what what are what are you relying on to form that identity, right? But which is just a queer person in a heteronormative world—that's really what that is. I mean, I think we're constantly seeking out representations of self, and then thinking about how those fit with with these, these these this feeling of self that we have. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but I mean, you've you've absolutely picked up on something that is true between the two novels. I think, although I think, you know, the miseducation of Cameron Post is such a a different book than than this book but i'm but i am preoccupied with how we know ourselves and how we share that self with others as as queer women i am
0: so that's a great answer sorry to kind of plumb the depths of your soul there right at the end <laughs>
1: That's okay no that's okay <laughs> brett easton ellis to that who knew
0: <laughs> yes indeed well you know what we'll we'll fire we'll finish off we want a much more kind of snappy light-hearted question actually which of the three main characters, Harper, Audrey, or Merritt, is closest to you? Oh,
1: no. <laughs> well, somebody asked me the other day, yeah, they were like, so, you know, your first, your deeply personal first novel was made into a movie. So, you know, you, you must be Merritt, which I assumed, you know, people would think. I think I probably have the least in common with Merritt, uh, other than maybe some of our writerly interests. You're not gonna like this answer. I know it's gonna seem like a cop-out answer. It really <laughs> is. But it's it's like it you could kind of go 30-30-30. You know, like Harper and I are both from Montana. It's probably about as much as we have in common. Like my scaredy catness and some of my anxieties definitely belong to Audrey. Uh, but some of my interests, my artistic interests certainly belong to Merritt. The character that I wish that I was would be Elaine Brookhans, but I am I could not be really further from Elaine Brookhawns. But if I got to sort of pick one character to be, it would be, you know, late 70s, very settled Brocant's matriarch, basically.
0: So Elaine's badass. <laughs> yes. And Merit is a pain in the ass. She's a good thing but that Merit is. She is. Have you got time to just finish off with my four little rapid fire questions that I ask everybody? Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. As I always tell people, you know, I want your first answer, something that jumps into your mind. Number one, what was your gateway to horror? It was
1: via my dad, and it was uh, a Disney cartoon, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I don't know if you've seen that adaptation. It was, I think it came out in like the late 40s, uh, w- which would have been when my dad had seen it probably first, um, and then he shared it with me in the early 80s, and uh, Bing Crosby plays Ichabod Crane, he plays Brom Bones, um, he narrates it, and it's terrifying, and it's still. It's still really scary. It's got a creepy song um, that they sing about, you know, when you're riding home tonight, make for the woods with all your might. And I remember that song. And the scene with the Headless Horseman pulls no punches. I mean, this was Disney in the 40s, and they just didn't care. And it's still scary. I mean, I really think it's scary. So that was, that was early on, and it was via my dad. And I remember some other Disney movies at that time, too, back when Disney made scary stuff for kids, like um, The Watcher in the Woods. Which is one of Betty Davis's oh, yeah. last movies. Yeah, yeah. Something wicked this way comes. Those are all early early eighties Disney movies that lodged lodge
0: firmly in my consciousness. So I always love when someone answers something that isn't Stephen King. Oh
1: yeah. As much no. as
0: I love Stephen King.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I like when people have different answers. So that's great. Sleepy Hollow, that is uh that's a good one. If you could recommend one book, not by yourself, to our readers, what would it be and why?
1: Okay, so this is impossible. This is a cruel thing that you do to a writer that we can only get to to name one book that just feels... Cool
0: and unusual. But today, you know, it might be different, but today, but we're talking today. Um,
1: so I, I would, I, 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 you know, I told you before we started recording that I listened to, I got to listen to some of your, your, your back episodes. And I know some folks said um, the only good Indians, the, the Stephen Graham Jones book. So I might have said that because I just read that this summer and loved it and, and thought it was terrifying and smart. But since other folks have said it, um, and I might've said Mexican Gothic too, but but other people have said that I'm going to say um, a book that I read this year that I haven't seen talked about enough, which is Rachel Harrison's The Return. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's uh, four friends. Um, one has been missing for two years and she mysteriously turns back up, doesn't seem to have any knowledge of where she was for two years, or at least won't tell anyone. And they these college friends get together for a, a long weekend at a creepy hotel in the woods and things just get scarier from there. And I think it really says some really smart things about female friendships. And, um, it also does not pull its punches. It has some really scary moments. So Rachel Harrison's The Return.
0: It's on my TBR pile. Um, yeah. I haven't got to it yet, but I, I will. Advice for a fledgling author like myself.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, my advice is going to be the the cliche advice that I give to every aspiring novelist. Um, and I, I guess I shouldn't say it's cliche. I think it sounds pat to, to novelists, which is, you know, you should read everything you can get your hands on. But I have worked with a lot of writers over the years, have taught, you know, creative writing for over a decade at the undergraduate and graduate levels. And in that time, I've had students who have displayed, you know, just like a real talent for creative writing, maybe at the sentence level um, and aptitude. but but they can never hold a candle to those writers who maybe don't have that talent, but who are readers and who read for pleasure. Um, and the reason why is that those, those other writers have built up. I think, I think of them as instincts and sensibilities that the writers who are not reading widely and are only reading the stuff inside assigned for classes, or you know sometimes <laughs> not even that they just don't have, I mean, they might be able to write a beautiful paragraph, a beautiful essay, but they don't have those instincts. And that really does come from just building those muscles up from reading, I think so many different kinds of fiction. And then you have these, you intuit when to apply some of that stuff. And I don't even think you can always name that. I don't think it works that way, but I see it again and again and again, the the, the writers that read a lot just have these instincts. And I, I don't know, I don't know if there's a Ira Glass, um, the guy that does this American life. I heard him give a talk once and he talked about, kind of that really frustrating gap for writers um, between your taste, maybe you've heard this before, like the taste that you have, and and part of that is your instincts, right? The stuff that you know you want to make, the novels that you love, and you can talk about why you love them, or the stories, and then the work you're act, act, actually producing on the page. <laughs> and that one of the things that shuts down, I think, like early people that do any kind of art is the gap between that, that taste and the stuff you're producing um and I think the surest way to get over that gap is to write a lot and to read a lot so that's my advice
0: that's great I'm I'm racking my brains because there was some theorist I was reading when I was back doing my thesis who talked about the text instead Mm. which is the book the book you always end up writing um it's never quite what you what you picture it's always stuck with me Similar thing.
1: Yeah, it's really good. There's also this really good essay that I will just recommend. Just as I, I recommend this. I always recommended it to my students who sometimes found it like really frustrating. And but I, I think it's worth reading. It's I know there's there's endless writers talking about reading, but this is really easy to find. It's Michael Ventura's essay. It, it's called The Talent of the Room. I think it's two and a half pages long. I think it's really worth reading and 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 he he gets somewhat into the weeds at the end of the essay about different kinds of writing and, you know, selling out and whatever, but it really is this essay about you can have all the talent and you can have the drive, but um he goes on to define how, what he sees the the talent of the room as and kind of strengthening that skill as a writer too. So it's Michael Ventura's the talent of the room. And I the last I checked, he had it up in his blog. I think he wrote it in the early nineties, but you can find it
0: i'll check it out i'll put it i always put the the things discussed in the show notes so oh, i'll have okay. uh, the show notes yeah this brings us i mean you you've had some warning because you've done your due diligence and listened to the podcast previously future guests please take note um that's kind of effort <laughs> that you know we appreciate so you will know what the last question is but i always like to ask people what are you most scared of
1: groups of people blindly following tradition <laughs> or ideology uh and i know lots of writers that we've some that we've talked about have Discuss that in their fiction as well. Um, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery comes to mind. Yeah, I think masses of people making choices based on something they don't understand, but because everybody else is doing it, causes me deep fear a lot, both in the general and in the specific. Um, it's something that keeps me up at night. But like the more, I guess, you know, people want the kind of like ghosts, goblins. Um, I'm afraid of a lot of things, but I'm absolutely petrified of, of home invasion, um, and I think that part of that started. My wife and I were moving recently, and uh, it's a couple of years ago. And we were we had our, all the doors to our house open because we were loading the car. And this was like a sunny, sun, you know, summer afternoon, and, and neighborhood with a lot of people out. It was like a Sunday. It was the least scary time, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And we were down in the basement, hauling things out in this very unfinished kind of creepy basement with a lot of small rooms that connected onto each other. And we we're off in one corner. Um, Very busy, you know, trying to get done with this endless move. And I I distinctly heard someone walking on the floorboards in this this old house above us. I mean, very clear sound. It's not great insulation of someone walking above us. And I, I knew that it wasn't my wife. I absolutely knew it. But of course it had to be her, right? Because otherwise I was about to lose it. And I, I, you know, I said, Erica said it like, as if she was upstairs, I tried to call her name as if to reach her upstairs. And of course she was over my shoulder in the same room that I was. And right after I, I said it, we looked at each other and she heard somebody walking around. And so I went over to the staircase and I did the thing that you're never supposed to do in a scary movie. And I said, who's there up the staircase and the person took off, um, through the rooms very quickly. You could hear the, the sort of change of their footsteps, uh, move to, to fast and out the front door. Um, and I don't know to this day who that was. It was someone who had obviously seen us um, and, and I think knew that we were in the house. I kind of think it was one of our neighbors. I think it must have been my wallet and some other things were stolen. I guess that's what they came in for. But that realization that they would come in while they knew we were there really sparked. I mean, I'd always been somewhat afraid of home invasion, but it set off like a much more kind of visceral fear of that for me that I, I definitely haven't gone up, gotten over in the years since. So home invasions. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went deep, but yeah, it was horrifying. I mean, just, I think I can replay that moment of those footsteps changing and just we, we play this guy, this game sometimes still, where we'll say, "Who do you think it was? Which of the, you know, which of the neighbors do you think it was? And what would they have done if we'd come up the stairs, you know?" Or, yeah, we go around about it all the time. But yeah,
0: this is my wife's number one fear. Oh God, we, we, we live, we live our life lying in bed at night. Going? Did I lock the door? Did I lock the door? And well I have to go to and check the door. So I can't let her hear this now because it's just more gris for her mill. Yeah, don't. <laughs> but no, that, that is that is quite the story. That is um, well, it's a good place to end it, I think. Really. So, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Best wishes and congratulations for the book. I absolutely just I loved it to pieces, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Whether it's five months or eight years again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me so much.
0: Emily Danforth, thanks for talking scared. So, Strawpole, who thinks that I may have slightly offended Emily with my comparison to Bratislaw and Ellis? She took it in good faith, but it kind of really is a mad comparison when you look at every other aspect of their lives and art. Still, I stand by it. And yes, though. Brett has been known to spout the odd inflammatory comment here and there. I'd be delighted to have him on the show. So, Brett, from one podcaster to another, let's chat. But back to playing Bad Heroines. It was published yesterday, on October 20th, by William Morrow. Unfortunately, that's just in the US at the moment, and UK publication isn't until next February, but you can get it on Kindle. Emily and I had a good long chat there, but we've still only covered the edges of what the novel really is. I don't want to put anyone off by making it sound too much like hard work. It's not. It's a really breezy read, deceptively so, but it's also brilliant and deep. It's like eating fast food made by a Michelin-starred chef from the best ingredients. It's, it's complex and thought-provoking and, and possibly quite challenging, but it still tastes great. Now, I've tortured the very last breath from that metaphor, so let's quickly recap some of the books that we mentioned in our conversation. As is pretty much the weekly norm now, we um, referenced House of Leaves, Peter Straub's* Ghost Story, and The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. They are perennial for a reason, and I will come back to them in the future, no doubt, but we can, we can leave it this week. We also mentioned Sarah Waters, and for anyone who doesn't know Sarah's work... She's probably the foremost queer gothic writer, certainly in the UK. She writes period novels full of ghosts and madness and asylums or the everyday terrors of life. Most people love The Fingersmith, and I'm one of the odd ones out who thinks it's overrated compared to her other novels. Not overrated generally, but compared to other things she's done. The Little Stranger is, for me, one of the very best ghost stories I've ever read with a lot of really creepy stuff to say about how men treat women, even when they think they're being nice guys. Honestly, it's an incredible book. Lastly, Emily mentioned Rachel Harrison's The Return and the essay The Talent of the Room by Michael Ventura. I haven't managed to read Rachel's novel yet, but it's climbing up my to-read pile, and um, we briefly spoke on Twitter the other day about her coming on the show, so I'll make sure to get to that. I've put the link to Michael's essay in the show notes. For anyone who wants to check that out, I've had a read of it. It it is really good. Emily and I both mentioned the film Late Mungo. And for God's sake, if you haven't seen Late Mungo, see it. Make it your kind of Halloween horror for this year. It's an incredibly effective little slow burn ghost story. Kind of one seen, never forgotten. But hang on until the credits because they mean something. Thanks for everyone's continued support. We've had a few episodes in a row that have been what I'd call horror adjacent and they've been great, but I'm back next week to discuss a proper balls and all horror novel with a breakout voice in horror circles. Until then, you can find the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And thanks for those of you who have taken the time to say hi already or who've left a review on Apple Podcasts. It's, It's lovely to hear from you. I've also now got an Instagram account with a few photos in it, mostly of books, my dog or my dog and books. Um, And you can find that for searching for Talking Scared Podcast. Bear with me, I'm kind of new to Instagram and I'm kind of feeling my way through it. But, you know, delighted to have you follow me if you do. Phew, I've talked a lot this week. Uh, Sorry about that. I'll try and keep my own voice to a minimum if possible. Let's call it a day there, shall we? Everyone, remember to put your clocks back this Sunday. Get the heating on, start eating those autumnal vegetables, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.